You're listening to Grounded, a podcast by the Oregon Department of Energy. Welcome, Grounded listeners. I am your host, Erica Hirsch, and today we are going to go back in time with Otto's director and history buff, Janine Benner. Janine and I will discuss and guide you along one very stellar Oregon energy history timeline. As always, please forgive any audio challenges. We are still conducting all interviews remotely. Okay, before we get started, I would love for you to follow along the timeline with us. So if you have a actual copy, paper copy, of Odo's 2020 Biennial Energy Report, go ahead and crack that open to the first section. Right after the first section, it's gonna start on what would be page 62. You can also easily find the timeline on our Energy Info website at energyinfo.org.gov forward slash BER forward slash energy dash history dash timeline. All right, as not to give any more away, let's jump in and meet Janine. So welcome, Janine. I am so excited that you're here. Can you introduce yourself? Sure. Thanks, Erica. My name is Janine Benner, and I'm the director of the Oregon Department of Energy, and I'm really excited to be doing Odo's Grounded podcast. Can you tell us a little bit more about what brought you here to Odo and if you're originally from Oregon? Well, yes, I'm an Oregonian native. I was born and raised in Portland and went east to college to Princeton. Um, Then I worked for a couple of years at a nonprofit organization before I moved to Washington, D.C., to work for Congressman Earl Blumenauer. Um, I worked in his office in DC for 12 years, first doing environmental and energy policy, um, then as his legislative director, and then as his uh, deputy chief of staff running the DC office. Um, I did that until 2013 um, when I went to work for the Obama administration at the US Department of Energy. Um, I worked in the Office of Congressional Affairs and then in the Office of Energy Efficiency and Renewable Energy. Um, And that prepared me very well to um, be ready to jump at the opportunity to work for the Oregon Department of Energy. So I moved back to Oregon with my husband um, who uh, is teaching at the University of Oregon. Um, And we moved back here in 2017. And um, I started at Odo in the Planning and Innovation Division and then took over as director in early 2018. Nice. Very impressive. And we are lucky to have you. While we do have a minute, can you share with us a little bit more about what you do for Odo? I know that this is your first time on Grounded, and it'd be great for the listeners to get to know you a little better. Sure. I'd be happy to talk about that. Um, And maybe before I jump into the Oregon Department of Energy, I forgot to mention in my background, one of the reasons why I was so excited to put together an energy history timeline for the biennial energy report. Um, And you really did make it jump off the page, Erica. You did a fabulous job. Um, So I actually studied history in college. Um, In particular, I focused on medieval and Renaissance European history, which doesn't really seem like it would uh, be relevant to my career since then, but you'd be surprised. But that has some major, major cool points. Thank you for sharing (laughs) that. That's very neat. Well, it was certainly interesting. Um, And maybe it helped prepare me for the Byzantine political system in Washington, (laughs) D.C. But really, my favorite thing about being a history major, other than just getting to study and learn really interesting stories, um, is that I had an opportunity to learn about different civilizations over time. And I think that really helps you understand human nature. So it 
It helps me think critically about, for example, where we are as a nation and how we got here. Um, studying history is a lot about learning from past mistakes. And then understanding the past can help put things in perspective and inform the way that we think about the future. And that's really what we were trying to do with that energy history timeline. Yeah. And you can see it throughout it, the way that you bring the themes forward is, is fresh and really exciting. And you can see that, that thought behind it. All right, yeah, thank you for that. So maybe a little more about Oregon Department of Energy before we jump in. Sure, so as the director, I lead the agency. We have a staff of about 75 and a budget of about $66 million a year. Um, and as the director, it really means being responsible for strategic direction, staff management, and the budget. Um, and at Odo, our mission, our new mission, which we just um, launched with strategic planning last year, is to help Oregonians make informed decisions and maintain a resilient and affordable energy system. We advance solutions to shape an equitable, clean energy transition, protect the environment and public health, and responsibly balance energy needs and impacts for current and future generations. So it was, it was a challenge to fit all of the things that we do at Odo, which is very diverse, um, into a couple sentences, but that was, that's our, our new mission. But really when you think about what we do, how we, um, how we deliver on that mission, um, we do it by providing a central repository of energy data for the state, um, energy data information analysis, by being a venue for problem solving Oregon's energy challenges, by providing energy education and technical assistance, um, by doing regulation and oversight in certain areas. And then we have a lot of energy programs and activities that help um, advance energy solutions in the state. Great, thank you for sharing more for us. Okay, let's jump in. So I have in front of me a hard copy of the 2020 Biennial Energy Report. And so I'm gonna follow along here with actual pages. If you are following along with us with a paper copy, it's gonna be at the front of the copy after the first section around page 62. It does start a new section and that'll be page one. So might sound a little confusing, but when you crack it open, it'll make sense. For us that are following along uh, via the digital space, um, you can go to our energyinfo.oregon.gov forward slash BERF, that's B-E-R. I'll also have it in the show notes, a link directly to the timeline PDF. So let's get started. Janine, when I look at this report, it is comprehensive, it's colorful, it's fun to read. It would have been just fine without the timeline. But then you look at the timeline and you really get that sense of Oregon's energy story with this history component. And I can't see the report being what it is without it. What made you decide to embark on doing something like this? This Creating this timeline looks like definitely no easy feat. That's true. It was definitely not an easy feat. It was one of the most challenging sections to write. Um, but we thought it was important because the Biennial Energy Report is really supposed to be a resource for Oregonians. Um, Oregonians who know a lot about energy and Oregonians who are new to energy or maybe even new to Oregon. Um, so I don't really think you can get a full picture of how the system works without understanding why it is the way it is. And so that's what we tried to do with the energy history 
um, section. So in the 2018 version, we had context and history sort of sprinkled throughout the various topics, um, but putting it all together in one place, especially in the timeline form, um, really helps people see the connections between events, the progression of policies over time, um, and the successes and mistakes that we made as, um, as a state and a nation. Yeah, it really does. Thank you for that. One of the things I wanted to ask about by the very beginning of this timeline and when you were researching it and deciding of what to include is where would you start in a situation like this? So I'm thinking, where would I start? And it definitely wasn't as far back as you went. And I absolutely <laughs> love that. So if, you, if you're looking at the timeline now with us, you can see the first event entry was 18,000 to 15,000 years ago during the last ice age, the Missoula floods, possibly the largest discharges of water in the history of the earth, shaped the Columbia River Gorge and the Willamette Valley. That is where this starts. So <laughs> can you tell us, Janine, what, why you felt that this was such an important kickoff point? Absolutely. Yeah, it was hard to figure out where to start, to be honest. Um, and what we did was think about, okay, so of all the events that happen over time to shape Oregon and our energy history, um, how could we organize them? What were some of the key drivers um, that, that made Oregon's energy system look the way it does and, and why it's different from other places? And so um, one of those drivers is Oregon's geography and landscape. Um, and obviously the Missoula floods, well, maybe not obviously, maybe not everybody drove through the gorge many times with their history buff father learning all about the Missoula floods um, <laughs> as a child, but I did. And um, really though that geograph or that geological event really helped shape the state. Um, it's one of the reasons why we have an abundance of natural resources from rivers to forests to strong winds. Um, it, in particular shaped the Columbia River Gorge and the Willamette Valley and deposited really great farmland. Um, so one of the drivers being Oregon's geography and landscape. Um, and unlike some other states around us, we never experienced significant extraction and production of fossil fuels. So that um, helps set Oregon aside. Um, it means we had a, a lot of locally produced renewable <clears throat> excuse me, renewable energy from the Windy Gorge and the sunny mm -hmm. eastern part of the state, um, but we import almost all of our oil and natural gas. Wow. Um, yeah. So again, that's partly due to our geography Yeah. Uh, and our geology. Um, the second major driver that we identified was those deliberate policy actions and choices that Oregon decision makers and residents made as our state grew. And those actions have affected the physical nature as well as the social and political aspects of our energy system. And so within that, we again identified three different themes. The first is actions that the state took to get power to the people. Um, second is the way that we as a state responded to energy crises over time. And third, how Oregonians um, we're really driven by a desire to protect the environment. So those those are three themes that you can find throughout the timeline and that helped us organize our thoughts when we thought about what are what are all these events we're gonna write about. I can also see when you bring up deliberate policy choices that were made and not only to response to energy crises, but just 
in, in general, as we're growing as a country and then as a state, the inclusion of tribal events. I you can see that this was important for you. Can you share a little more about that? Absolutely. It was important for us to not only acknowledge the presence of the tribes throughout time and their impact on the state, but also the impact that the development of the energy system that we rely on has had on tribes and their important resources. So one of the themes that you can see throughout that sort of helped um, drive development is the desire to electrify the West to get power to the people. Right. And that involved building a lot of dams. And so we tried to make sure to highlight in the timeline the downsides of those dams. The damming of the rivers had significant consequences for Oregon's tribal people and the region's salmon populations, which they relied upon. So, for example, if you look, I think it's on page four, we talk about the Grand Coulee Dam, which was built in 1941. It was the largest concrete structure ever built at the time. And the electricity that it provided was really important, not only for electrifying the West, but it's been estimated that the electricity from that one dam alone provided enough power to produce aluminum in about one third of the planes built for World War II. So our region really contributed to um, the victory in World War II. Yeah. But at the same time, the construction of that dam flooded a really important historic fishing ground at Kettle Falls in Washington state. And until 1946, salmon and steelhead continued to appear at the base of the dam, trying to get up the river to spawn. Um, but then after that, they were never seen at the dam again. And we showed some pictures uh, in the timeline of a three-day gathering in 1940 that was held by the Confederated Tribes of the Colville Reservation to eulogize the impending loss of the historic falls. And it was called the Ceremony of Tears. Um, and that is still celebrated to this day uh, to call salmon back, um, even though the construction of the dam ended the migration of the salmon back in, I think, I said 1946. So, yeah. you know, it was important for us to to tell that story so people had really that full understanding of the trade-offs of all types of energy generation. Absolutely. So let's go forward. And again, uh, if you're following along with us in the, the, the timeline, the PDF for paper that was on page four, there's a little more, um, some earlier events regarding tribes on page two, and also it'll continue throughout the timeline. So just little tips there. All right, let's 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 jump further in. Let's talk about the first theme, getting power to Oregonians, as you say, power to the people. <laughs> yeah, that was too good not to, not to have that be the way we say it. Um, so yeah, so, you know, go back to 1860, um, the streetlights in downtown Portland were actually lit with coal gas. You can see that on the bottom of page two. And then in the late 1800s, um, electrification was starting to um, take root across the country. Um, and that came out to the West. And in the late 1800s, the first long distance transmission line in North America was actually built in Oregon. It was built between Willamette Falls and Portland. Um, and so that is uh, there on the third page in 1889. Um, and there were a bunch of, you know, electric companies um, popping up at the time to take advantage of, of this new um, technology. So the creation of Portland General Electric, 
um, of McMinnville Water and Light, which was the first, or at least they claim to be um, the yes. first municipally owned <laughs> utility in Oregon. I think there are some other uh, utilities that might um, buying for that title. Exactly, buy for that title. Um, and then Pacific Power and Light, which uh, is now Pacific Core. Um, those were all created um, in the late 1800s. Um, and the, as I mentioned before, the early electric companies were originally created to power electric railroads. And the growth of PGE in the 19, excuse me, in the 1890s, for example, was connected to electric load growth stimulated by the local and interurban electric railroads. Um, I never so, knew that. That's or, Oregon has has been a, a long time proponent of electric transportation. <laughs> that's true. That's a, that's a yeah. <laughs> that's a great connection to modern times. If you if you look at who is really pushing uh, transportation electrification right now, it is the utilities, and it's because you know again they see that well, they, they see the greenhouse gas benefits of it, but also the additional market for their electricity if people are driving cars powered by electricity. And around this time, Oregonians were starting to buy electric appliances. Um, manufacturers around the country were also making greater use of electricity. So for example, in 1914, about 30% of American industry was electrified, and this grew to 70% in 1929, and so when you think about this demand, this new demand for electricity, whether it's railroads or manufacturing or, you know, an electric washing machine, that is what then drove the West to develop more hydroelectric generation to be able right. to meet this need. Right. And in that book that I mentioned, uh, Electrifying Eden, about the, the early electrification of the state, there's some really fun advertisements that were running at the time. We have and some time. Can you share one? Share one with us? I would love to. Okay. Uh, so this is from the 1929 Pepco Synchronizer. So that was an, another name for um, one of the Oregon electricity companies. And it's a little poem. It's called My Mother's Happy Now. My mother says she's never tired since father had the house all wired. First thing she percolates and toasts and afterwards she boils and roasts. The clothes are washed and on the line before the kitchen clock strikes nine. The ironing's done and put away, lots quicker than the sad iron way. Her vacuum makes the rugs like new and cleans the dust from corners too. She sews for miles on her machine and sharpens knives to edges keen. She turns on switches everywhere to light the lamps and curl her hair. And when the weather's hotter than, my mother has her electric fan. So it sounds kind of silly now, and, and obviously a lot has changed since the um, late 1920s in terms of, of housework. But if you, if you think about the benefits that electrification had for people who spent a lot of their time, um, you know, ironing with a hot, I don't know how they used to iron before electric irons, but- The sad, um, the sad way? <laughs> the sad way, exactly. <laughs> Uh, so it, it was it was pretty exciting, and these electric companies were really doing yeah. what they could to um, make that new technology stick. And that has interesting parallels now for some of the new technologies that we're seeing develop, whether it's programmable thermostats, LED light bulbs that use less energy. Technology has been developing over time, and we're just you know continuing to make strides. We are very cool. Okay, let's move into the second theme. So the second theme that we identified was 
the deliberate policy choices that were made in response to energy crises. And when you think about it, in a way, we just sort of jump from one energy crisis to the other, sometimes it feels like. But there were some key energy crises that stood out to us that had really generated a change in policy. And so the first one uh, that I'll mention you can find on the top of page six is the 1973 Arab oil embargo. This embargo was in retaliation to the support given by the U.S. to Israel at the outset of the Arab-Israeli Arab war in 1973. And at the time, the Arab members of OPEC tried to use oil as a political weapon to force the withdrawal of Israeli troops. And because the U.S. was so heavily dependent on foreign oil, this embargo led to an immediate quadrupling of oil prices. Uh, and that led to rationing of gasoline and long lines at gas stations. And we have a picture of those in the timeline, um, a picture of Portland where there are a, a line of cars waiting to get gas. And the skyrocketing costs created structural challenges to the stability of the US economy because we were so dependent on oil. And that energy crisis spawned action at all levels of government. And the timeline includes actions taken by Congress, by Oregon lawmakers, by the international community. So I'll just jump to Congress first. In 1975, Congress passed the Energy Policy Conservation Act, and that increased CAFE standards for cars and light trucks to 18 miles a gallon for model year 1978. Wow. That doesn't sound very good now. I mean, my no. <laughs> uh, the current miles per gallon is about 41, and uh, my Nissan Leaf gets 112 miles per gallon equivalent. So we've come a long way since then, but but those, that, that was what spurred the first CAFE standards. Bill also created state energy conservation programs and energy efficiency targets for consumer products, appliance standards, which uh, we're still pursuing here at the state level. There's a bill in the legislature um, this session. Um, that bill also prohibited the export of crude oil. We, uh, as, a, as a country, decided it was um, too important. We wanted to keep what we had to ourselves. Um, and that export ban was actually just repealed in 2015. Okay, so let's go, let's jump into the third theme. Great, so the third theme that we notice is environmental protection. So Oregonians have for a long time been making deliberate choices to protect the natural resources of our great state. This was behind the passage of the state's land use laws, which affect everything from transportation patterns to how energy facilities are siting. Cited. Um, environmental protection and public safety was a motivating factor for Oregon voters when they passed an initiative in 1980, making it extremely difficult to cite a nuclear power plant in the state. And if you go to the timeline on page nine, you can really see that connection between something that happened and then an action that Oregonians took. So um, the vote on the measure to limit nuclear power siting in the state came in 1980, and that was about a year after the 1979 accident at Three Mile Island nuclear power plant in Pennsylvania. And then finally, more recently, concerns about air pollution and climate change have driven a number of actions. So the timeline talks about the 1997 creation of the nation's first price on carbon, which is the FSEC CO2 standard. You can see that at the bottom of page 11 to the creation of the Oregon Global Warming Commission and the establishment of the state's renewable portfolio standard 10 years later in 2007. 
And then of course, Governor Brown's executive order on climate change from last March made it onto the timeline and uh, agencies just submitted their progress reports on that. So, uh, you know, we still have a lot of work to do yeah. on climate change and um, we're continuing to, to make history. The timeline basically ends with the closure of the Boardman coal plant. That's mm -hmm. Oregon's only coal plant and it closed in October of last year. So history was literally being made as we were putting the final touches on our report. It was. So at this point, might put you on the spot here, but do you feel that there's anything you missed? Is there anything that we missed? Yes. yes. I am confident that we missed a lot. <laughs> um, as I mentioned at the beginning, there are many different versions of history depending on who's telling it. And I'm sure that if somebody else looked at this timeline, they would say, oh, wait, there's this really important event that you forgot to include, or really the one that you include, I don't think that has a really big impact. Um, so I, I think both in terms of improving our knowledge about energy history at the department um, and informing any future reports or books that we write, um, I would love to hear from listeners and readers about events in history that they think helped shape Oregon's energy system. Um, I hope people will take a look at the timeline and tell us what they think we missed. Um, was there a part of history that you were a part of? Do you have a different perspective on event that we wrote about? Are there other sources that you think we should know about? Are there other themes and drivers that stand out to you? I would love to have a conversation with Oregonians about Oregon's energy history. Um, I get that I'm um, both an energy nerd and a history buff, so I may be the only one who wants to have these conversations, but hopefully there are other energy nerds and history buffs out there who um, would be interested in thinking more and learning more and teaching us more about what's happened on energy in Oregon over the years. Oh, I'm sure some folks would. And if that's you, listener, please reach out to us. And with that, I think this is a good place to wrap up. Thank you so much, Janine. It's been a blast. I love this section of the Burr. I hope everyone will check it out and I will talk to you soon. All right, take care. Well, that's it for us today, folks. I hope you learned something about energy, organ, history, all of the above. And please don't forget to check out the show notes. We'll have the access information for the timeline again and some fun links that'll take you to photos and additional information about Janine and the timeline. Have a great day, guys. And remember, stay grounded.